When your ideal customer's kids are begging every night to read your book, you've won. At Dinosaur House, we turn industry leaders into kids' book authors. We don't do it because it's a super fun thing to do, although it is. We do it because it's highly strategic. Imagine if every night your customers are being asked by their kids to read a book that your company made. Talk about brand affinity. You're helping your customers connect deeply with the most important thing in their lives, their kids, over something that they are passionate about that has to do with your industry. If you want to have a conversation with us about how your brand could become the author of a kid's book, just hit us up, dinosaurhouse.com. Hit the little button that says schedule a story design call. And we'll have a jam session together on just what your company's kids book could and should be. Hi, everyone. I am Cindy Finch. I'm a clinical therapist and author, and I help people go through hard times. And by the way, I am a purpose-driven entrepreneur. What's up, purpose-driven entrepreneurs? It's me, your host, Timmy Bauer. And if I sound funny, it's because I am recovering from the Omicron right now. Um, my guest today is Cindy Finch, and she is the author of When Grief is Good, Turning Your Greatest Loss into Your Gr Biggest Lesson. Cindy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Timmy. We both have COVID in our house, so I'm glad we could meet today. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> yeah, for real. Um, a good thing. A good thing. It's not transmissible through uh, Zoom calls. I guess I it wouldn't matter though, since we both got it. <laughs> I know. Um, so, uh, Cindy, just to give our listeners a little bit of context on you, um, I'd love if you could explain a little bit about how your business works. Um, as in, like, when did when did you start it? Um, what's what's the growth been like? And like, how do you like? What's your primary way of getting clients? That sort of thing. Sure, absolutely. So I'm a, I'm a therapist in Southern California, and I've been a therapist for a long time, but I always worked in um, group practices where I drew a salary or um, an hourly wage. And, you know, I hit a rough spot in that type of work. And by the way, that type of work is kind of cushy because I don't have to handle all the business side of things. It's all handled yeah. by, you know, the the team and the staff. And and I hit a rough spot where life threw me a couple of curveballs and I realized I need to do my own work separate from, from a group. And so that was three and a half years ago. And it's been a fun, wild ride because I am literally not a business person. So it was a whole new world for me. What um, was the hardest hitting reality when you went on your own and, and started your own business? I bet like a lot of people, I was really afraid, like, how was I going to get customers and clients? Like, I, yeah. I didn't know if I was going to be able to close that gap between a dream and a reality that could actually pay the bills. Um, but it turns out that word of mouth referrals in my business are like gold. And so I had a lot of people that said, hey, we heard she went out on her own and it's a little easier to access her now that she's on her own. So I got a lot of first person referrals. Um, it's so funny. I, everybody says that word of mouth referrals are, you know, the, like the best, uh, the best 
way of getting of making revenue in a business and i just personally haven't experienced that in my business yeah, most yeah. of the time i'll talk to somebody that will do a kids book together and then uh and then if they refer me to somebody oftentimes they're referring me to a friend that can't afford my service and we jump <laughs> on a call together and i come to find out they can't afford the service so and you're like matter. dang <laughs> okay okay what? maybe in my business people are literally like i just really need a therapist but i i had yeah. some barriers you know i i don't okay this might just kill our interview right now but i don't take no, insurance I don't take okay. insurance. And so literally like every, every one out of five people that called me couldn't see me because of my business model. Yeah. Um, and, and so that was, that was tricky. I had to figure out my place in the market and talk to people who are already doing it and say, what's the reality of being a cash or credit card only therapist? Like that was kind of a, um, that was kind of a crap shoot, to be honest, that was hard. Yeah. Um, what was, what's the reasoning for that? I don't know enough about the world that you're working in. Your listeners may not want to know any more about this world. It might bore them to tears, but the, this could be a whole separate podcast to me. Um, the current state of the, um, and anybody who's tried to access mental health care through their insurance company will just give a high five and an amen to what I'm about to say. Okay. Insurance companies are literally so problematic for covering mental health services. They have co-insurance, co-deductible, yearly deductible, out-of-pocket max, you know, all of these mysterious numbers that uh, a policyholder has to meet all of those deductibles before they can use, you know, typically use their benefit. So that's on the user side. And then on the insurance side or the pay, well, who am I? The provider side, <laughs> um, you know, let's say a therapist charges $120 for a session. By the time the insurance company gets done with that, they may reimburse you like $40 for like three hours of work. And gotcha. it could take six to 10 weeks before you get paid. So it's, uh, especially in California, man, we have way too high of a population and Lots of healthcare problems here. Dang. So is this still a big old, like, like a thing causing a lot of difficulty in your business or how have you uh, just worked through it? So what I've done is I've decided to give the very best service to anybody who calls me. I've decided to treat each and every client and customer as if they were a family member. So people who call that don't can't pay my um, cash or credit card rate and they want to use their insurance like I go to bat for them so I have them on the phone we can look at their insurance provider directory directory together I can help them pick somebody else I can refer them to people I know I'll post on a private Facebook page that I belong to of local therapists until I find matches for them hmm. It's just kind of the golden rule and that's what I want to be about in business and that's how I want people to treat me so that's what I do. And yeah. that good that I've put out in the world has actually come back to me. That's awesome. Um, this is a question I like to ask a lot of entrepreneurs, what is one of the hardest problems that you've had to solve within your business, and I guess I'm saying besides this one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> besides it, the financial part. Um, you know, in my particular little corner of the world, um, doing mental health support intervention 
work during a pandemic has been extremely tiring. Um, and so solving that problem has been a delicate balance, almost a daily reckoning of how much do I have to pour out versus how much do I need to support myself so that I, because I'm my product. Yeah. And so when you're supporting others, I mean, I remember, let me give you an example. The day after the Capitol riots last year, I had seven clients booked and I must, must have processed that like seven times. And I hadn't even had a chance to digest it myself. And I remember at the end of that day, I was just like, wow, people were so shaken because they thought after the election and the new year, we we're going to turn this great corner. And I had people coming out of the woodwork to get therapy. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm kind of myself a little empty and a little burned out and a little disillusioned. So there's a, there's a balance I have to strike between filling my cup and being able to fill others. Yeah. Um, when you think about like, what does it take for you to make sure that you are full or, or how would you, what advice would you give to somebody else who's struggling with the same problem? So I know plenty of people who they are the product in some ways I'm still the product, although mm -hmm. this is, this is fortunately graduated to the point where like with dinosaur house, it's productized service with several people on the team. I, 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 I touch the, the, the process a lot with each customer, but I am not like straight up the product. Mm -hmm. um, but I know a lot of people where this is the case, like they're, it's, they're a consultant, uh, they are the product. Uh, what's your advice to them when they're struggling with this problem? I think the bottom line would be, do not keep this stuff to yourself. And by that, I mean that I talk to, I have a mentor and so I will run problems by her that feel vexing, that will keep me up at night, that I feel inadequate to meet, that I am unsure of. And we just dialogue the crap out of those problems on the phone. And I swear by the time that phone call is over, my load usually feels like 30 to 40% lighter because someone else is carrying it with me. Yeah. Um, so the mentoring. And then the other thing is I draw a lot from my family. Um, that's a, a reserve of, of goodness and support and laughter and education that I have poured into for 25 years and it is there supporting me back. And I really appreciate that. It's uh, like the homage to good relationships. So Cindy, I started this podcast because I wanted to ask purpose-driven entrepreneurs what it is they're really living their life for. Now, in your case, you're very public about your the, the purpose behind what you do and, and how it started. But for listeners that are not familiar with you, I'd love to just get you to kind of briefly explain um, what got you into um, ther therapy in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, like nobody writes a book if they're not thinking about the bigger purpose of their life. Um, so if you wouldn't mind just telling your story just a little bit, and then I want to ask you some more questions. Yeah, no problem. Um, so my husband and I came to our marriage and our life kind of thinking like, yeah, we're in love. Yay. You know, all that sort of misguided <laughs> way of thinking, just innocent in this world. And then we had like all these off the chain experiences, you know, we had cancer while I was pregnant. We had a blended family. We had three little kids. 
Um, we had a lot of marital problems. Um, and then I went into heart, liver, and lung failure. We had a cross-country move. We had financial <laughs> issues. Basically, all the, you know, SHIT hit the fan. And we really had to figure out what we were about and, and how we were going to get through life and really grip down and find some tools and some ways of, of dealing with hard stuff because we kind of felt like we got baited and switched by life initially. But then we were like, oh, like life has this pace that's pretty frantic. And apparently suffering is like a part of this. And so we had to get our legs under us. But basically, Timmy, the things that we learned and developed through those terrible times for us, I wrapped them up into a book for other people because the number one thing was Darren and I didn't have anybody else in our lives who had ever been through what we'd been through. We had no handbook. I mean, it was overwhelming and multiple times and occasions and years of our lives. And so I wanted to take that and pass it along and pass it forward and maybe help somebody else. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did, uh, what did your life look like? You said this all happened in your early thirties, right? Yeah, I was 31. Yeah. Um, so what did life look like before that? Like what so were you doing for a living? <laughs> I was a social worker, you know, making a million dollars a year not working for, I, I think I was working for the Department of Welfare. Um, no, I okay. love social working and um, I had actually been married and divorced. I, I tell people I failed my way through my twenties, learned a lot of <laughs> lessons. And, <laughs> oh my gosh. And, uh, and then Darren and I I've met been married and divorced too, by the way, this is not the laughter oh, of judgment. Now we've got a, we've got a young married and divorced podcast going. All right. So good to know. Hey, second time's the charm, hopefully. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I love, I love my wife. My, uh, so uh -huh. I'm married again. My wife's amazing. Um, uh -huh. But yeah, um, uh, in my twenties, I was, uh, I'm in my thirties now in my twenties, I was married and divorced. I was married for uh, seven, almost seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Divorced. That sucked. Yeah. Um, I just seen my husband and I, my ex-husband and I were young and dumb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Young and dumb. So sorry. Um, well, what's interesting is when I was just reading your story and like some of the things that you had to say about grief, I was relating so hard in the sense of like, uh, when I was going through divorce, that really rocked me because mm -hmm. I was one of those people that I would have, I would have said never, like, like it's never okay to get a divorce. That's right. Uh, divorce is not an option. We used to say to each other, divorce is never an option. Divorce mm -hmm. is not an option. Um, and so there was like a huge identity crisis that I had um, mm -hmm. when we got divorced. Uh, and just like for context, so a small amount of details. Um, I did not want to get divorced. Gotcha. Uh, Important to know, right? Important <laughs> to know, because it, it, it's a very different perspective. The one who wants to leave versus the one who's being left. Both have pain. Yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, so I was I was rocked because it was so sudden that, okay, um, she wants, she wants a divorce. And then, um, and she was, she was having an affair. So there was like, there was a mm. whole, I'm not trying to just like air dirty laundry. I'm really just trying to give context. No, no, but it's why, kind why of why common. Was such an identity crisis. That's right. That's um, right. And, uh, and the grieving process for me was so weird. Um, but uh, 
but like some of the biggest thing like things that stand out to me was just uh i felt like i felt it felt almost like death in the sense that this thing that i was yeah. like this is never going to happen which death happens to everybody but I know, the, right? you know in my head i'm like this thing that was never going to happen has just happened and i don't even know how to how to process it and then That's at right. the same time it also just turned my life upside down because mm. i needed to sell the house um <sighs> and so like where am i going to live so there's just all of this uh all of this crazy um uh unknown uh, everything turned upside down like and i don't even know how to process my own feelings yeah, yeah yeah i'm in disbelief i remember there were times i had to move out of the house and so i had to like gather up things you know figure out like what things are getting packed and what things are getting thrown away and i would i would do i'd be able to do like a couple minutes of packing before i would just find a chair somewhere sit down and I would just sit still for hours, literally hours. And I would text my friends and be like, I need somebody to come over and help me box things because I can't move. Yeah. Like I physically just like couldn't move. Right, so immobilizing. It's so like, it's so gripping when we go through these life events. They they are not only isolating, but they're shocking. And, and to freeze like you did, yeah. 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 Um, I had to sign the divorce papers or like uh, go through them at least like go through and figure out like where do I need an initial where do I need to sign and I couldn't do like I couldn't do the most basic things if that's they right. had to do with the relationship that's right and that was bizarre that was a very bizarre thing but you talk about you have this thing called a grief checklist where you've got like items on there to like to know if you're grieving yeah. um and I feel like I'm talking all over your content. Just, <laughs> no, what? See what I'm saying? Referral is the best way. <laughs> your talk. Thank you. No, you're exactly right. You know what? I you were probably having, and and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I've seen it in me, and so many times it's like death of the dream. Mm. You know of describe how, that. What do you mean, death of the dream? Death of the dream is like how I thought life was going to go versus how it really is and the the gap there and the disillusionment with when reality hits us across the back of the head like with a frying pan because you know i had values i had beliefs i had decisions i had um you know the force of my will to like make things work i have my religious background with uh you know interpretations about love and marriage and partners and and then i have the till death do us part and standing in front of friends and ministers and when all of that is still not enough to make another person want to choose us want to do family with us want to reverse their current actions it's yeah. a blow yeah yeah um, it's interesting to me that when you talk about your grief, like when you talk about your journey with grief, um, you don't include, or, or at least I, I, I don't, do you include your first marriage failing or is that just like, ah, oh, that was just part of my, my 20. <laughs> well, it's like, how long could the book be? You know, uh, <laughs> I, I actually, so funny thing, I, ha I didn't want to write this book. So uh, I'll tell you that because uh, it's a heavy topic, right? Yeah. And I tried to keep it really user-friendly, very 
um, linear and very um, tool driven so that people wouldn't get lost in my emotion because that's no fun to read a book like that. Um, but my, my mentor said, I, I'll tell you, I wanted to write a book about bravery, about courage, about overcoming. And my mentor said, yeah, but that's not really how it went down for you. Like that may Ooh. have been a byproduct, but yeah. that's not where this started. And yeah. if you, if you give the readers some kind of silver lining message about growth and bravery, like you're going to do them a disservice and the truth is, this is, okay, my truth is, I think the epic failure of my 20s, and you can read all about it, I think in chapter two on the book, is it's miserable, epic failure, bankruptcy, foreclosure, repossession, divorce, single parenting, I was on welfare with my two little kids, just gross, right? All the things you tell your children, like, if you're going to be a good adult, do the opposite of what Cindy Finch did. Um, okay. <laughs> But I, I think that that amount of unprocessed grief and loss from my 20s actually culminated in my physical illnesses. It's my, it's my mm. thinking, because how else did I get such epic, terrible, life-threatening, catastrophic illnesses that don't have any other explanation? Mm. I don't have a genetic predisposition. I was in really good health. I don't... So it's one of those things where I could have written a whole book on divorce and, and the craziness that it causes inside of us and in our children, but it was kind of like too much. How much of that do I really lay out? Because it was kind of like too much for anybody, but yeah, it's in there. Yeah. Um, what are some things that you have learned about grief that you feel like um, people uh, not enough people understand this about grief or even people that are grieving don't understand this thing about grief. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's two things. One is that um, we want to avoid it like nobody's business because it's heavy, it's hot, it's miserable. It makes you sit and not be able to fill out lines or fill boxes and call your friends and it's immobilizing and that runs contrary to our American like efficiency, productivity, success, you know, be on top kind of mindset and values that we push in our country. We don't push slowing down. I mean, we do a little more. Oh, late. that's so true. Well, you're yeah. right. There is a big movement in that direction now, but in the circles that I run in, it's there, there is like in the entrepreneurial world, there's not a whole lot of slow down. Right. No, you got to keep going, got to keep going. And, and so what we do is we avoid it. And I talk about grief avoidance, which I may have done uh, myself and how it can back up inside of us and create problems. It can create addictions. It can create uh, mental illness. It can create um, um, physical problems. And when I'm avoiding grief, it's because I don't want to feel all the feels. And the other thing is, I don't know how to feel all those feels because they're coming so fast and they're so unfamiliar. And I'm wildly uncomfortable with big emotions, especially ones that have the word L-O-S-S. -S. Like America is not trying to be in loss or lose or be a loser or be a failure, right? That's yeah. like not the American dream. And so anything that has to do with loss 
like we, it's like a hot, a hot poker we're trying to just get away from. But can I tell you just how many people will drink and drug that away or they'll have affairs or they will um, be impossible people to live with because of their anger. Or, I mean, I meet a lot of people in deep grief who end up on a psych ward mm. because of a big life event that's unprocessed. So that's the first thing is how much we avoid it. Um, but the second thing about grief that I don't think people realize is that it's the doorway for growth, hands down. Like, let me ask you, when you got married the second time, did you look at that relationship wildly different than the first one? Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Did you just not was, cherish that woman? <laughs> I, yes. I'll tell you, I was very, very clear with her about right. what I don't want my relationship to look like. That's right. <laughs> Crystal. Like, like, Crystal hey, clear. I was like, I was like, if this, I was like, if <laughs> there were so many, if, um, you know, if this is what you feel, uh, then, then we should end it now. Or if, you know, <laughs> I need to know immediately if there's any problem. So one, I can either get out or we can work the shit out of that problem. Sorry for swearing. Yeah. But no, you yeah, can first. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think I put her through so much, but I mean, I, I, um, I really did not want to have a marriage that looked anything like the one that I had just left. That's right. And I felt, I like, I felt, uh, oh, such a weird combination of feelings. So a little bit of more context on me. I yeah. am a Christian and I come from a pretty strict Christian upbringing um, and a way less strict today than I was back then. Yeah. Um, I felt like I followed almost to the letter all the things that the church would tell you you're supposed to do when it comes right. to relationships mm -hmm. uh, and relationships and, uh, and then being engaged and then marriage. I mean, I was like, you, you would like, if, if, if church youth groups could put posters of me up in their, up in their youth campuses, they would because of how well I stuck to what you're supposed to do as a Christian when it comes to I'm very familiar with that culture. Yes. <laughs> And, uh, and then I just remember as I was going through the divorce, I was like, I feel lied to like, look what, yeah. look what it got me. Um, mm -hmm. and so second time around, one of the things that I did was to just threw away everything for the most part, almost everything that the church taught me about relationships. And I was just like, I know what I want and what I don't want. And I have a pretty good idea now at this point of like, like, like how, how can things go wrong? And so it's just, I'm just gonna talk about that like to, to more of a degree than people would think that you're supposed to. That's right, that's right. <laughs> and well, I don't know, yeah, I don't know how good or bad that was, but, um, but we do have a marriage where, um, where like if we get into a fight about something, it's like, okay, babe, like, like we talked about this a lot pre-marriage like this is something this thing that about me that is bothering you like like that like it's a, a serious part like I have ADHD this is a part of how I'm put together so if you don't <laughs> right? like that's, that's why I said to you over and over and over again when we were dating if you don't like it you've got to find someone else yeah 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 or help me figure out how to change right because there's a certain amount of change we can do within our type but not a lot especially with something that's 
um, like organic in nature. Like if there's something about me, like I can dye my hair, but I can't change the tone of my voice. Right. There's some, there's some, I mean, a little bit, but not a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wouldn't be healthy. Wouldn't be healthy uh, to do that. Um, But I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm putting, I'm not meaning to put her in a bad light. She, my wife is amazing. Um, And she, when we do have those conversations, she'll, she'll say like, yes, babe, I know you have idiots. I'm not talking about that. I'm not trying to get you to change. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I don't know how it landed here. (laughs) No, it landed because I was saying like grief actually provokes growth in us because when I go through an epic astronomical loss of some kind, especially one that disrupts your worldview, which is what happened to you, because you believed if you worked to this formula imparted to you by organized religion, that you were going to get the correct product out at the end, as if like there's a vending machine way of life. Right. And and I get that because that we, I think we in the, in the church feel really safe with this sort of formulaic prescription of handing people you know just do this and then it's going to go like that here's the problem with that like that's not actually how god works it's just not i mean any i I would let me just be clear i would love it if life would stick to the formulas i would love it like i wouldn't even care that i didn't even have a job anymore because formulas in life work so well like yeah. bring it, but God is not a vending machine and life does not obey my rules. Like I can't foolproof life with my formulas. Now, there are things like love and respect each other can can make for better relationships. But when you have a phrase like that, like um, love and respect each other, it, I'll tell you what that's called. That's called an oversimplification of a very difficult action. Because to love and respect Timmy or Timmy's wife is going to be a very different prescription because you guys are different people. And by the way, telling somebody to love and respect another person doesn't tell them how. Yeah. It just says, here's the thing to do, but it doesn't actually say how. And for Pete's sake, you know, I can't control another person and make them love me in return. Yeah. You know, so I I guess that's the thing, you know, that grief is the doorway for great growth. And I, it's the doorway for empathy. Like right away when you and I were talking and you said I'd been divorced in my twenties, right away, you and I had a connection that like, I get you and you get me because it's so like, it's so interesting when all your friends are going off to college, opening businesses, working in their careers, dating for the first time, having kids. And y'all are in divorce court, Cindy and Timmy, you know, (laughs) like I was in divorce court pregnant. Like how humiliating is that? Like, that's crazy. Like, I'm sure the judge was looking at me going, Ooh, (laughs) rough. So that, yeah. But here's the thing. Grief is the doorway for growth. You cannot help but be changed when you go through epic loss because it requires you or doesn't require you. It, it almost, if you don't avoid it, it almost thrusts you into the process of change, reevaluation, looking at all your values, what you thought was true, and then beginning to re-engineer a path for yourself with a course correction. And I'll tell you what, people pay thousands of dollars to go to therapists and motivational speakers to get course corrections, to get inspired, to get motivated, to find their purpose. 
here's my thing, like go through some loss and meet that loss all the way and find out the lessons that it has for you and really get under it and let it teach you. And you will become your own pattern interrupter. You'll, you will become better. The inspiration will rise. But the bad side of that to me, and this is my trigger warning, it's a dark path. It's a dark path. If you really show up and grieve and don't avoid the difficulties and learn from them and let them change you like you did. Yeah. Like that wasn't it be very, very lonely. Extremely lonely. How many other people in their 20s do you know that were like, oh yeah, dude, I'm on my second marriage? Like no. I was really lucky. I actually, one of my best friends had literally gone through almost exactly what I was going through oh. a couple of years before. So I was really lucky in that way. So I say it was lonely, but I was so lucky because so blessed because um, while I had tons of friends and quotation marks that were just judging me for right. all the wild ways <laughs> what that did I was you do wrong, Timmy? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. Um, uh, I had a couple of really close friends that were super non-judgmental, and one of them had literally gone through what I was going through. Oh, I love that. I love that. So one of the things that I get so curious about is when my whole faith structure gets upended. Yeah. Like like yours yeah. did, like mine did. This is how I described it to people. It was like if if you take everything that you believe as a Christian and you laid it out like it was dishes on a table. Yeah. Uh, and then the 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 event that causes the loss is the grabbing of the tablecloth and just and it's everything goes up in the air. Everything you've ever like believed that. is up in the air. You don't believe I, anything I, anymore. Right. Whoa, because it all, none of it held. Yeah. None of it held. So how did you navigate that? Because I had to kind of like reconstruct. I got totally what I call deconstructed through yeah. my suffering. But to me, it was one of the best but hardest things that happened to me um, because I had to... <laughs> I had to come to grips with like, like you can't foolproof life and like God is not on my agenda, on my, on my rules, on my leash. Right. And that life is actually supposed to be hard because it's how we grow and that nothing's off limits. Like yeah. those are things that I felt. I don't know if it was true. I want to be careful. It felt true that those were not the things taught in church taught in church was more like clean living, dutiful service, getting along, like kindness, generosity, but they weren't like, I had one pastor that was like, okay, so you're on what we call the dark side of the cross. And I was like, how is that even, that's not even on my GPS, right? Like I've never even heard about that, but boy, let me tell you the dark side of the cross, the dark night of the soul was so galvanizing and transforming but then i was yeah. angry because they didn't teach it in church describe your relationship with god uh pre and post or sorry pre and during so okay do we have we're gonna do a second podcast here <laughs> sorry, uh, but I'm just I know. So curious. <laughs> well I became a Christian when I was 16 and it was a lot about fleeing uh, an unstable, abusive home. And so I really uh, clinged on, locked on to the idea of a loving father, God, because it was safe and secure. 
unconditional love, a father figure that would never leave me, always chooses me as there no matter what. That was like the linchpin for me. I was like, oh, like a parent that won't hurt me, like somebody who's with me all the time that won't leave. So for me, it was very emotional and attachment based and very safe. And that's, that's how I started in it. And then I started going to church with all the rules. Yeah. Okay. So there's like a crap ton of rules. And I was like, well, I guess it kind of makes sense, but I really want to stay attached to this safety of God. And so I would walk that way. But then when life started kind of like hit me over the head, I was like, why would a loving God do these things? And then I realized that these things were actually growing me. So then I uh, mentally could kind of understand them, but I always had a sandpaper rub with the pain of life being side by side with the love of God. That was yeah. always hard for me. And yet many things coexist like that. So I will say like faith and fear often coexist, um, suffering and um, great comfort can coexist. And that was my experience to bottom line it, that I felt like, you know, if you've ever been at a park and there's little kids running all over the place, if one of the children fall and skin their knee, that parent will almost always automatically go and pick that one up and hold them on their lap. I mean, if they're a pretty good parent, right? Yeah. And that they'll pull that one close because that one needs more support and comfort. So my experience with God during my times of suffering was that exactly yeah, that very same. parental, yeah, comforting. I got more of the presence of God. This is jump the shark from entrepreneurial stuff, but let's go there. I got more of the comfort of God during my time of suffering because I needed more. But I'll tell you what, people around me, it was like I was in another zone like I was talking German I was like this is the best thing ever I'm having yeah. these off the charts experiences with God and they're like we don't even we don't have a reference for that and I realized because the one who needs more gets more yeah oh man I can I feel I feel that so hard right? I that's such a great analogy like uh that the one that falls down and skins their knee is the one that the parent runs and like yeah I felt I felt like I'd been ripped open felt like everything that I believed was up in the air who even knows what's true and what's not true mm. but I knew that God was true I knew that because I could I I felt so close to God closer than I've ever felt to him and I would have the same thing like I would go to the gym and I'd be running on the treadmill and I'd be like crying with my hands in the air just like in worship feeling so close to God as I'm like wondering if my house is even going to sell and that means that I'm going to you right. know it's going to foreclose and my life is in shambles and all this kind of stuff, but God's going to take care of me. I can't, I can't even describe it. I can't even describe it. <laughs> I describe then, it as the best worst time of my life. <laughs> That's what I say. It was so sad, glad, so bittersweet. You yeah. have a mention in your book. Sorry, we are over time, but oh I just God. want to wrap this up. You have a mention in your book about how, like, it's like right in the beginning about how like topics of grief always touch topics of spirituality. Mm. Um, uh, why'd you put that in the book? Why is that true? And how do you talk about this with people that aren't spiritual or don't have any spiritual beliefs? So I'll take, I'll take that one first. So how do I talk with people who don't have spiritual beliefs? So to be honest, I don't talk to them because they usually talk to me, but I will ask some leading questions if I don't feel it coming up. 
Um, one of the questions I ask if people are talking about, oh, they've had a catastrophic loss or they're suffering, I will usually ask, so where's God in all this? And often the remark I get is, I don't know, I'm not sure, or I'm trying to connect or things have changed. But a lot of people, even really, really you know, solid atheists, which is fine. I mean, that's their life. Um, they're like upset at God. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but like he literally doesn't exist. I mean, according to your belief system. So that's really interesting because there's something in us, right, that wants a bigger something to make it all okay or to blame. And so the reason I put that in the book is because I just have rarely found conversations around existential big things that don't somehow have something spiritual or religious or prayer or something going, some energy like that going on around them, because when things pull toward the eternal or toward the end of life, there's so many question marks because we really don't have it all figured out. I mean, this one time I was in a hospital, I'll tell this, like try to make this two minutes. And I was in, on the cardiac unit, but I was about to be discharged. It was on a Sunday. And I was like, gosh, I would normally be in church on a Sunday what can I do? But I could walk around like with my little pole with all the IVs and stuff. So I went to every person's room and just took prayer requests from them. I was like, I'm just here on a Sunday. I'm going to go back to my room and pray. Do you have a prayer request? And so like I went to seven different rooms and everybody, regardless of their ethnicity, of what they looked like, had some prayer requests because when you're in the cardiac unit of a hospital, like all of your big... <laughs> ego stances about life and God and all your power kind of get stripped away. And you're like, okay, even if it's a total Hail Mary, if there's a God out there, I need help. Yeah. And so that's why I put it in there because I think we can't avoid it. And, and I've worked in the ICU at Mayo Clinic. And I'll tell you what, man, ICUs are like, um, you know, nobody's an atheist in a, in a, in a ditch. Yeah. It's yeah. that kind of thing because we're scared. That's the truth. We're scared and we, we need help. Yeah. Um, Cindy, this has been a really fun, interesting conversation. Um, I have uh, one for fun question I want to ask you. Okay. Uh, so I'm a kid's book author. I believe that part of leaving a legacy means reaching kids. What's a topic or idea you'd make a kid's book about if you could? Heaven. Interesting. What do you mean? Well, so much of loss with little kids is like, where'd they go? Like if a child loses a parent or a friend, and by the way, I've lost, I, when I was three or four years old, I lost my best friend and it was like one day he was there and one day he wasn't. And that pattern has continued to repeat through my life and my children's lives where they've lost significant friends or family members all the way through. And there's such this closed door of understanding about heaven, not because I think God is closed, but because it's just truly a mystery. So I wrote this poem, it's on page 205 of my book called On That Shore. And it in a, in a, a desperate, difficult time, I wrote a, a poem, it's a really ode to my children about what was gonna happen right after I died and until we got to meet each other again, because I wanted a way to secure in their hearts that even if we're apart, I'm okay, they're gonna be okay, and we're gonna come back together. But really specifically, not just like woo woo, 
kind of vague type of things. And so yeah. that's what I would write a children's book about. I love it. Um, what is something that you currently suck at that a year from now you want to be great at? <laughs> oh my gosh. Weightlifting. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, I think for me, it's uh, making my podcast episodes shorter, even when I get into conversations right. I really love, like this one. Uh, no, oh, just kidding, exactly. Cindy. This has been wonderful. For anyone that's made it all the way to this part part of the episode, where would you want listeners to connect with you? Oh, um, cindyfinch.com. Ring me up. Let's talk. We can talk about heaven, or we can talk about atheism. It's all good. Love cindyfinch.com. It. Love it. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. You're welcome, Timmy. 